We love improved things in our culture. I mean, you name it, we like to get out there, get in line. Hey, it might be a new phone. Oh my gosh, it's amazing. It's got an extra pixel. I don't know. Maybe it's something that you're excited about, the new video game systems that have come out. Or maybe you're out there and it's some kind of new widget for your, for your kitchen or some kind of new gadget. I've seen some cool coffee things that have happened lately. Man, there's always something, whether it's phones, cars, you name it, that we get pumped up about because it's new, it's improved, it's the 2021 model because nobody wants the 2020 models, right? And so the point is that we, we love this improvement. I, I can remember, maybe you can remember it, that way back, like you used to have the record player, right? You put it out there, you turn it on, and like nice little scratchy sounds, you pull that thing off, and you listen to the music, flip it over and do the same, and, and then out came the eight track, right? You go shove it in. I remember my parents had a big one, push it in the car, and you listen to the songs loop around, or then you had the cassette player. And I had all those cassettes, right? Plug into my little Walkman, walk around, woohoo, enjoy myself. And then it was the CD, better quality. You got all those songs, only one side. It was incredible. And then out came the MP3 player, lower quality, but man, you could have all of the ones that you wanted, all on one device, recorded all over the place. It was awesome, right? And now they found out, oh, you can steal all that stuff. So we've gone and improved one more time. And we've come back to, yes, the record, right? It's the most popular thing out there right now. Everybody wants the record. And I find vinyl a funny joke because we can seem to over-improve ourselves. We can get to a place where we start improving, 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 and it's not really that much of an improvement. So why are we so obsessed about improvements? Why do we love the new and improved all the time? Because we seem to do. And the answer, I think, comes in a little bit of the fact that we have an overarching narrative in our world, this idea of evolution. And I think the, um, the idea of Darwinian evolution, where things can be chaotic and crazy, but then as time and randomness happens, they gather together and they get better and better and improve and improve and improve, gives us the implication that we're on the edge of this. Now, we can control this, and if the randomness can make it better, we could do even better than better. We can make even greater improvements. We're going to go from animal to human, from human to superhuman. Oh, we're going to go from the, what the world made to make it even better to, to go to the stars and beyond. Hey, we're going to keep driving ourselves and pushing past things, and we can look to the past then. We begin to look at what they did and how they did things. We go, that's dumb. We begin to judge them as, as dark ages and crazy people and old people. And so we end up with this reality that we think we're better than. But I think this is all a story to mask an issue. It's all a story to mask a problem in our hearts. And if you look at a quick glance of history, you're going to realize something. No matter the improvement, no matter the improvement, we corrupt it. There's something about our sin, something about the stuff inside of us that it doesn't matter the improvement. We wind up corrupting the problem. We may make a better government, but it winds up being used towards human evil. We may wind up making amazing computers that are going to save us all this time, right? And only now all we do is stare at them, addicted to them because they're in our pocket. You know, we may be able to be, make awesome planes and vehicles and all these different kinds of things only to realize that they're just gumming up the space and they're causing other kinds of new issues we didn't realize and, or they're bringing diseases across countries faster than we could have imagined. You know, we got the internet and all this done has increased the, the, the existence of pornography even in the homes of, of, of good godly families that don't want it there. See, we can look back and all these kinds of things, and we wonder, what were we thinking when we made it? Well, that's the same thing when we look back morally. When we look back at slavery, we go, what were we thinking? Maybe you look back at, at, at segregation, and we go, what were we thinking, right? That, that's, what, what were we thinking? We, we can improve. And it's that kind of what were we thinking mentality that makes us begin to go, hey, 
what could we do to improve? We could, we could do this even better, only to become the very people that other people look back on and go, what were they thinking? Like choir robes, what were they thinking? Right, okay, so we get the idea that we always seem to corrupt whatever improvement that seems to be. And what we may think it'll be better doesn't ever solve the real problem. What is that real problem? See, the real problem is our sin. It doesn't ever really solve the sin. You could educate the person, but they just become an educated sinner. We could give that person money, but it just makes them a, a, a rich sinner. We could give them power, but they just become a powerful sinner. Guys, we just can't seem to solve the problem of sin. So where do we put our hope in? It's not going to come from technology. It's not going to come from education. It's not going to come from these places. Where do we go? I don't want to tell you where we go. We go to Christmas. It's because here at Christmas, we're going to celebrate the fact that because of Christmas, everything is improved and about to be made new. In this series, I just want to show this off. That because of Christmas, everything, my friends, everything is truly improved and about to be made new. And you're thinking, how can you make that statement, that claim? Well, guys, because when Jesus came, man, he ushered in something brand new. He ushered in something so incredible, so revolutionary, that it's going to change everything. And everything that we then do from there will be an improvement, a true improvement, a beautiful improvement. But here's the thing, guys, we have to see that it comes from the Bible. It's not me making it up. It's actually coming straight out of the scriptures. So join me, grab your Bible, open up to Luke chapter one. Let me show you just how radical Christmas actually is. Luke chapter one, beginning in verse 26, you're coming into the Christmas story. Now, if you've heard it before, you read it before, Bear with me. I get it. We've all heard this, but I want to open our eyes to a little bit more nuance in the text. See a little bit deeper, go a little bit further. And so it begins this way. It says, verse 26, in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, greetings, O favored one, because that's how angels talk. O Lord, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be since I'm a virgin? And this is the critical point, that last word, how will this be since I am a virgin? Do you notice Luke emphasizes that fact a lot? I mean, he says it early on. He's telling them, he's telling us all, look, uh, he, that Gabriel came to a virgin who was betrothed to a man. He says the virgin's name was Mary. Mary even says, how can this be? I'm a virgin. This virgin focus is important because it was clear that this virgin was going to have a son named Jesus. This virgin Mary was going to have a child that was radically different because of how this child would be born. And in fact, this child was going to fulfill a prophecy from the book of Isaiah. Isaiah had come to a king and, and was telling this king, listen, God's going to give you any sign you want if you just uh, ask him. And the king's like, I'm not going to do that. I'm not testing God. This is ridiculous. And so God told him, he says, fine, I'll give you a sign. The Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel, which is God with us. Now, 
there's a lot of people out there who are going to tell you, look, that word virgin, that's not really virgin. It's actually a Alma, and it means a, a young lady, and it doesn't really mean a virgin. And blah, blah, blah. That's nice. When the Jewish people decided to translate their own Bible, the Hebrew Bible, into the Greek, they chose at this point not a word that wouldn't mean young lady. They chose the word that is virgin. And this is the same word we find in our text here in Luke. Yes, it was a fulfilled prophecy that this one who was to be born would be born of a virgin. That's how they viewed it at the time of, of Jesus. That's how we view it today. This was going to be one born of a virgin. And this was going to be the one, the Messiah, that they were hoping for. What's a Messiah? The Messiah means the anointed king of a line of David. You see, a Davidite king was one who was going to be of a grandchild of some kind of the King David. And this one King David was the, considered the greatest king of Israel. And so when he desired to make a temple for God, one day God said to him, you're not going to do that. I'll let Solomon do that. You are a man of war. You're not going to. But here's my promise to you, David. And he gives him this. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise you up your offspring after you. Who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. And this is the idea. Ever since that point, this, this, the next king of da in the Davidic line was considered a son of God. Solomon was like a son of God. So when he sins, God would chastise him, that kind of thing. He was to be an example and a representative of God on earth as the king of Israel. He was representing God for the people of Israel, Israel, and he was representing Israel for God. And so there was this intersection with the king. But this ultimately was going to be seen as one who truly was going to be the son of God. Of God, this Messiah who is coming in their mind, who's going to take out Rome, who's going to set up uh, the Jewish religion as, as the religion of the world. He was going to bring about all of the world under the rule of Yahweh, their God. This is the beauty of what the Messiah was to do. And they were excited about him coming. They were expecting him to come. They were hoping that he would come. This was their hope. Just as we have all kinds of hopes. And in their hope, what they came to and they realized is that their Messiah was going to be one who's going to do these great things. But Jesus was more than we're going to bargain for. Jesus was going to be far greater than this. Check, take a look. Let's continue. In fact, she says, well, how can this be since I'm a virgin? He says, and the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has already conceived a son in the sixth month with her and was born, who is called barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. And what I love about this is that the Holy Spirit is ready to do something incredible, something new. It says that he's gonna over, the Holy Spirit is going to overshadow in her and that he's going to come in, upon her. Now, these are powerful terms because the Spirit of God is a, is a powerful, life-giving spirit. I mean, just take your mind back a bit, uh, all the way to the beginning of the book of Genesis. And what we see is we see a very clear picture that in Genesis chapter 1, beginning in verse, um, verse 2, it says that the earth was without form and void, 
And this darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And what the Spirit of God was doing was about to bring forth everything God said, the light and the life on all of these things. The Spirit of God brings life. In fact, when He creates the man, He forms him out of the clay, it says in chapter 2. And then it says He breathed into His nostrils the breath, or the ruach, the spirit of life. The Spirit of God brought about the original creation of humanity, of us as human beings. What He was doing here was bringing about another original creation. That's why he uses this very special language. He says this is when he's going to overshadow you, he says, right? He's going to come upon you. This has no sexual terminology. Muslims love to say it does. In fact, Mormons love to say it does. No sexual terminology at all. In fact, we know this because the very same term come upon you is the power will come upon you is used in Acts chapter 1 verse 8 speaking to the apostles. The apostles will have the Spirit of God come upon them and they'll speak the gospel of the nations because the Holy Spirit was doing a new creation called the church. You see, a new creation happens because God comes upon them with His Spirit. A new creation also happens because He's going to overshadow them. It's going to be a holy situation. So Jesus was going to be holy without sin. And this was shown on the Mount of Transfiguration in the book of Luke when Peter and them come up to see Jesus. The, they start to sin and say all this kind of stupid stuff, and the Spirit of God overshadows them as if the holiness is telling them, be quiet. And this is the point. The power of God is there to make a new creation. See, the child born is more than just the Messiah, the King, Son of God. No, He was the true Son of God. He was God's Son. A, a brand new creation, the one who has eternal life within him, the one who is already holy without sin. This is who would be born, the Messiah, Jesus. Oh, yes, he's God's son, but it's even crazier than that. In fact, just take your Bible up for one more time, flip a few pages over to the end of chapter 3, the last verse. Already what's happened is Jesus has already been baptized and all this stuff by John, and he's way older now. He's 30-something. But suddenly, Paul just, or Luke just kind of drops in the genealogy, throws it right in there, and ends with these terms. He says, the son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. He literally says Adam, that original Adam, was the son of God. And he uses the same terminology, I believe he uses it on purpose, because what he's trying to do is tell us that Jesus is the new humanity and our hope. Jesus is this new creation, this new humanity. The Spirit of God has made a completely new human being. Outside of our sin, outside of our death, outside of our brokenness, a new solution has come from the outside. See, we're of Adam. We're of the old humanity. We're of the old guy, the guy that was formed and the Spirit of God breathed in him. What he did is he sinned. He wanted to do it his own way. He, broke his, he wanted to do it his own power. He wanted to have his own desires. And so we, he sinned and he plummeted us into sin. That's what Paul says. He says, just as sin came into the world through one man, Adam, and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. Death came to us. Sin came to us because Adam sinned. In other words, another place he puts it this way. For as in Adam, all die. Guys, all of us 
who are from the original time period, the original Adam, part of the original humanity. We die and we know it. We know we're going to die. See, we can't fix the problem because that's what broke us in the first place. <laughs> we weren't supposed to touch and do stuff and make up our own code and write our, as if we're like, as if we're a computer. We can't just make up our own code. and We break ourselves. That was the very action. So every time we try to get involved and, 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 and fix our own problem is the very problem. We tried to make it right. Adam did that. And when we try to do it ourselves, we break it even further. You can't stop sin. You can't overcome sin. Our hope against sin is that we have to have it come from outside. We need a new hope. We need a hope that can help us against death. We need a hope that can help us against sin. And we have tried and tried. Humanity over and over and over again looks for a hope to stop and break sin. We, some of us have, have tried to find it in, in the system. And if we could just break the system and stop the system, then we will we'll be healed. I think of John Lennon's song, Imagine. And the lyrics, if, if you know them, are very clear. He says, imagine there's no heaven. It's easy if you try, no hell below us, above us only sky. He goes on to say, imagine there's no countries. It's not hard to do, nothing to kill or die for, no religion too. You know, he says, okay, imagine there's no possessions. I wonder if you can, no need for greed or hunger, a brotherhood of man. He says, you may think I'm a dreamer. He's not the only one, right? He, he's giving a giant manifesto that we've got this people if we would just get rid of the systems that mess us up. All the religions that mess us up, all the, all the countries that mess us up, all the possessions that mess us up. We just, just make everything same, same. Then we would have no sin. I, I just disagree. He's not going to overcome sin by getting rid of the system. He's not going to overcome sin by giving everybody money. You see, the problem is we begin to believe that, that, that poverty births sin. That's not it. And when we do, we want to give everybody's money away. When we think that richness births sin, and we think that they shouldn't have that much because that makes them greedy. Well, I've met greedy poor people. I've met greedy rich people. And I've met humble, content poor people and humble and content rich people. Sin has nothing to do with what I have or what I don't have. Sin has nothing to do with whether I'm educated or I'm not. Because if we think it's about a lack of something, we try to fill that up, but that's not going to fix it. What you just make is an educated sinner or a really uneducated sinner. You make a really rich sinner or a really, uh, or a really poor sinner. You make a really uh, powerful sinner or a really oppressed sinner, but you don't change the sinner. Those are categories that you can't fix with these things. And yeah, we've tried, man. We try to get rid of the system. We try to get rid of the stuff. We try to overcome death. This is the big thing right now. We've tried to overcome death with eating right and figuring out our biology and doing all these kinds of things. And lots of people are trying to fight off their own mortality. Right now, many of us are trying to keep ourselves alive in the middle of, a, of all of this uh, COVID stuff. And we think, man, if we could just add another hour to our day by controlling this thing. You can't control death. You can't. We can't do it. Technology is not going to control death. And I get it. There are going to be people out there in the transhumanist perspective, which is going to try to claim that not only can we control death, we can improve humanity. We make ourselves bigger, better, greater, fix the genome, fix the problem, baby. We can just overcome and then we'll be ready. Some say we should be able to download our brains into computers in the future so that they can hold our knowledge and we can be okay like the lawnmower man way back in the day, right? Some people have gotten to the point that Unfortunately, they, they've, cry, they've gotten into technology as their hope that they use cryogenics. There was a, a horribly, 
heart-wrenching story of a, one, of a woman and a man from Thailand whose daughter at the age of three died of tumors and cancer. And they took her brain and they had it cryogenically froze in a hope that one day she would, they would take that brain and put it back into a technologically advanced enough robot child or something that that child would come back to them. And they believe it's going to happen soon. Unfortunately, this is the level that we can get at in our desperation to overcome our sin. And these are noble. Guys, don't hear me. I'm not mocking. I believe it's noble to try to help people not sin. Whatever, when we thought it was education or finance or whatever, we want to be noble in these quests, but our sin even messes up that. It messes up the technology. It messes up these things. And we become just further because the bottom line is just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, it spreads to all men because all sinned. This is a ubiquitous problem. We all sin. So where's our hope? Again, it's in Christmas. Christmas changes everything because everything's about, improves everything. Christmas improves it all because everything's about to be made new. You see, Jesus is the new son of God. He's the new humanity. He's the new start. He is the person born not of Adam, but of the seed of the woman. He's the one who's born outside of a new lineage. We get a new start, a new morality. He is Holy, it says, the Son of God. Without sin, the Son of God. Without sin, the true King, the true Messiah, the true one who is going to live forever. Just as the new Adam brought about a new humanity, or brought about humanity, so now we have a new humanity. See, he died and rose from the dead, Jesus did, and in, because death couldn't hold him. God raised him up, Peter said, loosening the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Death had no right because he's of a new humanity. The old humanity, us in Adam, we sinned and therefore we died. Jesus never sins, therefore Jesus can't be held by death. He is the king who is over death. He has defeated disease and decay, all of death's parts, because he is the new humanity. As by Adam came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead, Jesus. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all shall be made alive. You see, what he gives you and me is a hope. Christmas gives the new humanity. It's not a new category. It is something you and I get to enter into. We have a hope by being brought into the new humanity. We can be part of that new humanity because we've been given the promise to be part of it. In John chapter 1, John puts it this way, To all who did receive him, receive Jesus, who believed in his name, his work on the cross, where he would bear humanity, old humanity's sin, and then rise from the dead, he gave us the right to become children of God, part of the new humanity. We were born not of the blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor the will of a man, but of God. This is God's action to bring you part of the new humanity. It's called being born again, reborn into a new human being, into a new humanity, one that is no longer corrupted by sin. So when you get that education, it's not corrupted anymore. When you get that opportunity to build a technology, it's not going to lead you into destruction. No, when you get that power, you're going to use it for the good of others. What we have is a new humanity without sin and a new humanity without death. And he says, here's how you gain this. You trust him. You believe. You believe in his work. You receive what he did. Say, so how am I supposed to trust God? I mean, God, really? I think if you're, if, you're, if you're not a believer in God, you're probably trusting something way more than I trust in God. 
at least for life. If you're trusting technology that's going to download your brain into it and save you, I mean, haven't you checked lately? Technology glitches. Electrons, they mess around, man. Can you imagine you've downloaded your brain into that thing only for a glitch and you're gone? That's a lot of trust. Or how about trusting just human scientists who we know get it wrong all the time? They're little, they, they may get it right for a little while, but how many times have we overturned scientists in the past seeing that what they had was only a part of the problem, but it's so much bigger now? Or how about this one? If you're gonna trust the uh, government, how, I mean, just go to the DMV. Okay, enough said, right? Okay, so here's the point. God's way more faithful. Let me just give you a couple promises. God promised that all humanity would die. Hasn't gone back on that one yet. All of us in Adam are dying. That's a promise that's been a guarantee. Oh, I'll give you a different one. Abraham was promised to be a blessing to the nations. An obscure man in the middle of the Middle East, 4,000 years ago or longer, was promised that he would be a well-known person in all the world. He is the most well-known man, and he has been a blessing, and his ethics have been a blessing through Jesus to the nations. Their teachings are everywhere. It's on every continent and every globe, everywhere that we go. The teachings of Jesus are the most impactful moral teachings of the world. It is a blessing to the nations. Jesus' resurrection was promised, and indeed it happened. You can go back and look at the historical events and go through that process. Go back to some of our Easter series, and you'll hear just how much evidence there is of the resurrection of Jesus. God lays down His promises over and over and over again. And what you and I have is the promised guarantee that God is going to rebirth you. He gave us Jesus, and He gives you this promise. The question is just this, what are you putting your hope in? It can't be your money. <laughs> it can't be your government. Is it really technology or education? What are you putting your hope in to really deal with the corruption, the sin, the wickedness, and the brokenness? The only way to deal with that is to allow Jesus to transform you and renew you, to put you into the new humanity where sin and death are overcome and judgment is dealt with. And if you would like to receive that, and become a child of God, enter into the new humanity, and enjoy this Christmas because He's made you new, then I want to give you the chance to do that right now. You can simply trust Him and let Him know by bowing your head with me right now. Just do this. Say, God in heaven, I know that I have sinned, and I know that I am a part of Adam, and I'm destined to die. But I trust that Jesus, you bore my sins on the cross, and you rose from the dead. And I trust that you are making me new. Would you bring me to new life? Would you lead me through the rest of this one that I would enjoy being part of the new humanity? In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, if you prayed that prayer, I want to invite you to let us know. Simply uh, text the word BEGIN to the number at the bottom of the screen, and we will get a hold of you and get you some information, a Bible and some stuff, so that you can begin this journey of knowing God better. Hey, if you uh, would like another way, you can simply say, hey, I, I made this decision. Click that little hand there and right there actually on this live shot or let somebody know at another time on our website. We would just want to help you begin that journey. Otherwise, church, all the branch want to challenge you is we love, live, and share Christ. In the middle of all this stuff, let's not get caught into putting our hope into government or money or these things. Just remember, we've been made new. The sin is taken care of. So let's live out Christ now. Let's share him with those around us. I pray that God blesses you this week, and I can't wait to continue in as we see that Christmas indeed improves everything because everything's about to be made new.
couple years ago now, I was sitting at BJ's when we were allowed to sit inside, having a conversation with an old friend of mine from high school. And we had two different, different perspectives when it came to some of our political opinions. As we were beginning to discuss kind of what we do with the taxation and different things like that, and why would it be important that we redistributed the wealth from the rich and give it to the poor and all these kinds of kind of Robin Hood-esque kind of conversations, it came down to this. I said, I don't think the issue necessarily is whether we should redistribute the, the wealthy's money to the poor or make the poor have more or whatever that is. I just think it's about not being greedy. I think it's about virtue. And in our conversation, it never had dawned on him that, hey, you know what, maybe it isn't the issue of somebody being um, wealthy as a problem, but what would they do with their wealth? And I told him, look, I know some really generous, wealthy people, and I know some really greedy, poor people, and vice versa. And so I didn't see it as an issue of, hey, wealth and not wealth. It was a matter of greed or generosity. And he came back with one final statement. He said, listen, here's the thing. That's great if everybody was virtuous and the rich people were helping the poor people out and all that stuff, that would be awesome. But people don't do that. So the government needs to force them to. They need to force them to have virtue. And I, I, was, I was kind of taken aback because I was like, that's interesting because you can't force virtue. You can't build a virtuous person by making them do something from the outside. We can't make a morality happen from enforcing it from an outside perspective because that outside is making you do something. And what's fascinating is historical perspective helps us with this. In fact, the biblical perspective helps us incredibly with this because when it comes to morality, when it comes to this idea of how we should live and how we should be virtuous, Cultures throughout history have looked for different ways to make sure people are virtuous. Whether it's the Chinese trying to make this whole ethics code and give you, uh, you know, almost like a video game-esque ranking and stuff like that. Whether it's the American thought of, hey, we need to let you be free and you figure it out for yourself. Or whether it's, you know, totalitarian governments or, or it's um, gradiated taxing and all this kind of stuff. It won't produce virtue. And in fact, the problem is when you force virtue, who's going to make the one who's forcing the virtue virtuous? How do you hold them back from their sin? Because what we've seen is the answer can't come from the outside, right? What we've looked at is when we want something new and we want something improved, when we want to improve the morality of humanity, it can't come from the outside. We know that if you educate a person, it doesn't change their morality, Education will, it, it will make an educated sinner or an uneducated sinner. You'll either be a poor sinner or a rich sinner. You'll be a religious sinner or an irreligious sinner. It really doesn't matter. We always act as sinners, oppressed or powerful. We'll be sinners with whatever we have. The solution to the situation of our morality the problem with the way that we treat each other isn't found in kitschy slogans, not in education, who has the power and who doesn't. In fact, it's found from somewhere else because God throughout the text, throughout history has reminded us that this is not the way that we're going to find a morality. We're not going to see a new and improved morality at all by external forces. You see, way, way back in the Old Testament, God gave them the law. That's the first five books of the Bible. God gave the Jewish people, His people, all the rules they needed to live with Him. All the morality is listed right there. And what did we find out? They couldn't do it. So He sent them priests, and those priests would cover over their failures and their sins and their lack of morality when they had done something wrong and evil. And so that was dealt with. And then suddenly we see that 
Even the priests were sinning, and they weren't good enough to cover that. So he sent them kings who were to represent the people and to represent God and, and be the law in of themselves, and they failed. And so he sent prophets to call the nations back, and the prophets failed. And the point over and over and over was established that if this morality isn't from, from inside, if it's not coming from within, it can't be forced from outside, which is the classic issue for us. We are struggling in this mess that we can't improve our way out of. We can't fix our sin. We can't fix our morality because sin is in our nature. As some theologians have stated, we don't sin or we, we're not sinners because we sin. We, we become, we sin because we're sinners. You get that? We're, we sin because it's our nature, because it's within us, but we're not without hope. Again, like we've been, we've been saying in this series, look, because of Christmas, everything is improved and about to be made new. Because of Christmas time, because of what Jesus did, because of what he has brought in his, in his act of coming into this world and God becoming a human, man, everything is improved because of this new humanity. Last week, we saw that Jesus is a new humanity. He was the son of God. He's changed everything. Everything has been transformed and is going to be new because Jesus Christ has come and brought in a new humanity. In fact, we saw the story of Luke as, as in the book of Luke as, as this, this unfolds and out comes Jesus as the son of God. And he drops in this genealogy just out of nowhere. And we see it here at the beginning of chapter three in Luke. And Luke kind of just goes, and I'm going to tell you about Jesus. And then I'm going to tell you a little bit about John the Baptist. And boom, now I'm going to just drop in this genealogy. And that genealogy in Luke chapter 3 ends very specifically. So as you turn there, I want you guys to go to Luke chapter 3, and we're going to be rolling through part of chapter 4. And you go, this isn't a Christmas section. You're right. However, it does continue to explain the concept of Jesus as the Son of God. Because as this begins, we see quickly that in Luke chapter 3, at the very last thing, it says the Son of, that at the end of this genealogy, this Jesus is the son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. A long genealogy all the way down, and Adam is the son of God. Jesus is the son of God. He's the new Adam. He's the second Adam. And this son of God becomes a focus. It's not like Luke just drops and goes, cool, and moves on. Now, Dr. Luke wants us to pay attention. And so in verse 1 of chapter 4, he picks up on this idea, but it's coming from another person. It's coming from the devil, from this one that we would call the, the diabolical, you know, kind of um, tempter and, and this slander that we know as Satan. So it says that Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. Now, we need to make clear, in the ancient world, when you went into the wilderness, this was a place where the demons dwelt. This is a place where death exists. This is a place of difficulty. And so Jesus is being led out by God, by the Spirit of God, into a testing. Why? What is going on here? What is this tempting and testing all about? It's as if we're going to replay Adam and Eve's original temptations. See, if Jesus is the Son of God, if Jesus is the new humanity, Satan's going to want to take it down. This slander is ready to just destroy it and remove it and put it into something new. And so I want to 
take you into this journey because what we see is Luke is going to clarify just how Jesus is the Son of God, this new humanity, and how it affects our morality. So we pick up. It says, He ate nothing during those days. And when, love this, and, and when he became hungry, right? So when those days were ended, he was hungry, and the devil said to him, if you are the son of God, command this stone to become bread. Now I want to pause here for a second because this terminology, if you are the son of God, if you are the son of God, he tells you, actually, it's not like the devil was wondering, hey, are you the son of God? I don't know. He was saying, oh, you're the son of God, huh? It's kind of how the, the Greek construction works. He's like sitting back, copping an attitude with Jesus, like, oh, so you're the son of God, huh? Okay, then prove it. Turn these stones into bread. You know, show off your power, man. You know, meet your own needs, hungry boy. And this was what Satan was aiming at. He was copping an attitude, challenging Jesus to actually prove himself to be a son of God, the son of God. And, and this is a temptation that comes from the beginning. He says, you know, to command the stone, become bread. And Jesus answered him, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone. And what we see here is a competition. Originally, Adam was challenged and Eve was challenged. The original humanity was challenged with the same thing. He, he was coming to the devil and in the, in the serpent came to Adam and Eve and looked at them and said, so, you know, can't eat from this tree in the garden? Really? You know, like you, you can't have this stuff? Oh, it's like God can't, doesn't even provide for you kind of attitude. And what was crazy is this is exactly not what was going on. Instead, what we see is that God had provided everything in the garden for them but the one tree. And even that tree was a provision, a provision of God's rule, of God's reign, of God's love to them. That, hey, I provide everything for you, and yet I'm still your God. And yet the, the devil comes up and says, oh, let, let's challenge this. He, he's not going to provide for you from this tree. You can't eat of this tree. Oh, God's keeping something from you. Same thing's happening here. The devil's kind of telling Jesus, look, oh, what, you can't have this? And he's trying to make a desire look like a need. Do you see how he's doing that? He's trying to make a desire that Jesus has to have bread look like a need. And we fall for this all the time. You see, we take shortcuts as human beings and we fall right into the trap of trying to claim that our desires are needs and therefore, man, I can meet those needs in my own power and my own time. In fact, in some ways, what he's pulling is a victimhood attitude here. Oh, God's not providing for you. Oh, you didn't get that special blessing. Oh, you didn't have that. Well, to take it for yourself. You can't have that tree in the garden. Oh, you can't have the, make, make the stones into bread then. And the point here is the call is a shift to put us into a situation in which we are going to meet our own wants. I'm not going to give. I'm going to, I'm going to go get the thing I really want. I'm not going to be generous. I'm not going to help somebody else out. It's my money. It's my stuff. And this is the essence of greed. Sometimes that's a financial issue. Sometimes it's about suffering. God doesn't want me to suffer. I'm not supposed to suffer. I'm not supposed to starve here. You know what I'm going to do? I'm just going to go get the food I need. I'm going to steal it. You know, I'm going to go do whatever I need to do to get what I want. You know, God doesn't want me to feel bad and, and horrible. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go smoke the pot. I'm going to go make myself feel awesome. We lie to ourselves in this way all the time to reach out for the wants when we think that they are needs. See this in youth ministry with sex. We see this in adults with desires like sex and money and things like this 
all the time. In fact, the worst forms are coming ahead, but this is, this is the beginning of drug addiction. This is where euthanasia comes from, where we say, you know what, life's too hard and God would never want me to go through this, so it's okay if we take our own lives. It's where abortion begins and we say, I can't have this child. God wouldn't want me to, or I'm, not gonna, I'm gonna fix this problem for myself. It's not a need, it's a want. This is where the situation of so many larger sins are birthed from because the the temptation is so clear. Hey, take it and make it your own. What I love about Jesus in this text, what I love about what he does is he says, no man shall not live by bread alone. Jesus trusts the Father for his provision. Jesus trusts the Father for his provision. You, You trust him right where you're at. Because Jesus didn't even see the need, this food as a need. He saw it as a want. Because the Spirit had led him out there to fast. He's saying, this isn't about fulfilling my, my stomach. God led me here for this. I'm going to trust that God's going to give me what I need when God's ready to give it to me. I'm not going to take it into my own hand to use my own power and use my own ability. No, I'm going to trust I'm not going to solve the problem for myself. I'm going to trust that God's got this. I'm going to pray about it. I'm going to ask God to bring my wants and cover my needs. And if he says no, I'm going to be fine because God's got a bigger plan than I do. I'm going to live by his word and not by um, the bread. I'm going to live by trusting what he tells me and not simply by what I can get. And I love this because the new humanity then, Jesus isn't corrupted by this, this reaching out to get what we want. No, instead we find one who is going to trust God in prayer, who's going to trust God in lack, who, who's going to be patient for God's answers. We, 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 even the worst case scenario is we're going to be the people who hope for his provisions because ultimately we know he'll provide them. And this is what Jesus gives us in a new humanity, a completely different way to approach this temptation, this desire for our wants. But Satan's not going to leave it there. He has another plan on his hand. So he, the devil took him up to, and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And he said to him, Oh, to you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will be yours. Now this is a real temptation. What he's doing is is Satan has been granted through the demonic gods of this world, the authority over the nations. And this is how the world was. This is how it was before Jesus came. In the Tower of Babel scenario, God literally said, fine, you, the, the, the angelic hosts uh, that have fallen, you guys can have them, they, and they worship these gods. What's going on here is Jesus knows that his mission is to come and save the kingdoms, all these nations, right? It's to save all these different people. And what Satan tells him is, says, hey, look, man, uh, if you want to, if you really want, if you really are the son of God, you're really going to save these people. Here's what you need to do. I'll give you the power. I'll give them to you. And you'll, they're, then they're after you because that's what you want, right? But you got to worship me. And, and what he offers Jesus is to have power to save. And this is so subtle. I will give you the power of the nations in order to save them, right? But you just got to worship me. You trust me and I'll give it to you. And this is the dastardliness that happened to humanity. They they were told, um, Adam and Eve were told, hey, look, if you eat of this, you'll be like the gods. You'll know 
good and evil. You'll, you'll know this stuff. And they're like, yeah, sure, let's eat it. You know, God's keeping something from us. In this case, we see that here the devil's like, hey, I, I'm keeping this from you. God's not going to give you these, so I can give them to you. But you gotta, you got to go through me to get the power. you got to go through me to save people. And this is a classic problem. Classic humanity, right? We do this in the old humanity all the time. In order to save somebody, in order to help somebody, in order to rescue our nation, man, we're going to use power. I mean, these are the stories of ancient times that we listen to and we realize. I mean, the, the Treaty of Versailles in, in Europe, if you don't know what it was, after World War I, there was such a, an outcry to limit Germany for its warmongering. The Treaty of Versailles was heavy and putting tolls upon the upon the German people. And from that resentment, the Nazi party was able to rise using this resentment saying, we, if you give us the power, we will save you as a nation. The USSR rose after horrible situations amongst the king or the, the czar of Russia. And they overthrew the Tsar of Russia and became the Socialist Republic because they claimed that they could have the power to overcome and save the people. This is the same thing that we see with, uh, in, as it was illustrated in a movie called Beautiful Boy. There was a, um, it's an amazing movie about a family trying to work through their son's drug addiction. And what happened was over and over and over was the father's attempt to use his power to save his son. And in that attempt, he was only making things worse. You see, the situation is when we use power to overcome and try to save, that power corrupts us. We end up worshiping it. We end up creating it into a God. We end up into addictions. We end up struggling. It's what happens when a woman uses her sex appeal as her power, it's what, and it destroys her, her humanity, and it turns her into an object. It's what happens when a man uses his physical prowess to gain control of his family, and he destroys his family by becoming an abuser. This is always the problem when we think we can gain control, we can save people, we can do something, and we can use power. Jesus doesn't do that. Jesus rejects that. In fact, he will tell him, Jesus answered him, it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. He's like, I don't need you to give it to me. I'm going to serve God. I'm not going to worship you. I'm not going to go for power. I'm not going to go for this stuff. God will give me what he's going to give me. And see, what happens then is Jesus didn't use power to save. Jesus used humility to save. Jesus entered into a situation where he trusted his father to save humanity, where he trusted all of these things. He forgave those who had gone against him. He didn't use power to crush them, though he said, I could have called upon many angels. No, what Jesus does is he comes in humility as a baby in the new humanity, and it's not going to be corrupted by human power. What Jesus does is he enters into the ability for self-sacrifice, which is the opposite of power in our world. And it's in his self-sacrifice on the cross that he opens a whole new way of a love ethic, of forgiveness and grace, of virtue and self-sacrifice, and not power over others. And so Jesus doesn't enter into the old humanity's problem, our problem, our, our morality that has been corrupted. He stays out of that fray and he stays fixated on his father and fixated on the power of, and yet here, uh, the power of God, not the power of himself. And, and yet here we go one more time. The devil's not going to leave it there. So he takes off at him. He says, he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple. So now he takes him and puts him in the temple in the, in the raging streets of Jerusalem where everybody can see him and says, so if you are the son of God, throw yourself down from here. 
for it's written. And now he quotes scripture at him about being the son of God. He says, he'll command his angels concerning you. That is to guard you and on their hands they'll bear you up unless you strike your foot against the stone. This is, this is so, so interesting. Satan's quoting scripture at the author of scripture. Satan is quoting scripture to try to get Jesus to throw himself down so he can prove that what God says about him is true. This is called a test. This is the kind of thing where God wants us to test or Satan wants us to test God's promises. He wants us to challenge whether or not what God says is really true. In fact, the way he did this with the original humanity is he walked up to Adam and he said, or to Eve and he goes, uh, did God really say? He wants to see doubt about whether God's faithful or not. He wants you to see doubt in you about whether God can really do what he says he would do. And if that doubt exists, then we don't pray. We'll do the other things again. We'll go back to those original pieces. We'll become a people who are, who are actually going to look at God as a vending machine God. God's going to do what I want him to do because God said this in the scriptures. And so I can manipulate and force God to act in a certain way. And this is the, this is the vileness of people who will use God's word to justify their sinful actions. And that's what he's doing. He's saying, yeah, use God's word. You've got proof text. Go ahead and do that. Oh, well, you know, God wants me to be happy. He wants me to sleep with this other person. Oh, yeah, well, you know, God really wants me to, to make sure that we're safe and protected in our family. And, you know, so we're not really going to go care for those people right now. That's the kind of stuff that, honestly, we can use scriptures to justify our positions left, right, and center. And, and Satan wants us to do that. He wants us to doubt God's word or to use God's word for ourselves. Jesus answers him, though. He said, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. I'm not going to do it. This is not something that, that we do. I'm not going to put my father's word to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. Now, Jesus didn't test his father, but trusted him. Jesus didn't test his father. He trusted his father's promises. See, Jesus understood that his father's promises were just true. They didn't need to be tested. As sure as you and I could drop the Bible, it will fall down. You don't test gravity. It's just there. It's, it's real. You don't need to test it. It's just how it is. We don't take God's word and manipulate it. No, we just trust that what God has said is true. Jesus didn't try to make God act. No, this is, this is a situation where when we promise, when we follow the promises of God, what we do is we trust what God could do and not what we expect him to do. See how that works? God could save me if I get into a difficult situation. And he promises he will. He'll resurrect me. So yeah, there's a sense, but I can't expect the particulars. I can't force his word to act in my way, but it will fit in his way. God will ever be faithful. And we don't need to doubt that because in the new humanity, Jesus gave us a new way, a way of trust of God, a way of knowing that God is faithful, a way of knowing that God's going to get it right every single time. And this is the wonder about Jesus. Because he never failed these things, every temptation came his way, right? He overcame every single temptation. And the, here's the great thing about the new humanity in Jesus. Here's the amazing thing. Jesus got like a superpower and his superpower is a super strength. His superpower is super morality. 
He's not super smart only. He's not just super strong. No, he has a super morality. The most important thing that we could need in a new humanity, in a world where we want an improved morality, is one who's a perfect moral being. He is the super moral. He's the perfect moral man. He is the superhero of morality. And this blew the disciples' minds. They constantly were talking about this. They were blown away by the fact that God has this super morality. In fact, it says in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 22, Peter's blown away that Jesus committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. Uh, John, his best friend, put it this way, you know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. I mean, when your best friend and the guy who is with you around you the most, both of them say that, man, he had no sin, you'll listen. The author of Hebrews will go on to kind of apply it. He says, since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. So we don't need to abandon our faith. We don't need to run away. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. This is beautiful. Jesus has never sinned, and yet he's gone through every single temptation. There's, it's not like there's a, there's a temptation that he went through that you and I aren't going to have to suffer through, that we're not going to have to work through, that we didn't go through. Jesus in his human, super new morality and his new humanity and who he is, is one who has actually never sinned, which means something, that every improvement that we can think of is actually an improvement in Jesus. See, because when Jesus becomes educated, you're making a perfectly good person, a more educatedly perfectly good person, right? Anybody who's transformed with the morality of Jesus, an education only improves them. You know, having power only makes them better. Having the good, uh, having wealth only gives them an opportunity to use it for other people. Uh, having beauty doesn't make them vain, but enables them to care. There's all these pieces about the wonder of who Jesus is when he has glory or suffering. It doesn't make him proud. It doesn't make him bitter. It makes him humble. It grows his character. It, this is the situation. In every temptation, he has never sinned. Therefore, every single thing that has happened in him is an improvement. And so those of us who are in a new humanity, if we're going to walk in his morality, your education becomes a benefit to you. Your skills are good for you. Your abilities become powerful. Your purpose in life is meaningful. Why? Because Jesus has given it purpose and meaning. All the rest of the stuff is only another option for corruption. But in the new humanity of Jesus that came on Christmas, all the improvements become improvements because he is the super moral being. He's the perfect sinless one born in that manger, a new humanity that you and I get to be a part of. As we saw, we get to be born into it by trusting in the name of Christ, by trusting in his work. See, Jesus becomes something greater for us when we become born again, which means now your education, the improvements that you receive, all these things are truly improvements. The corruption is changing from us to where all the rest of it's just garbage and sin corrupts it. No, now in Christ, the new humanity, the education, all that stuff is all improvements. Because here's the thing, in this new humanity that we enter into, Jesus examples how to live and enables us to live. He examples for us how to live and enables us to live it out. First of all, our, the bottom line is, again, no one can make you moral. 
Now, now imagine with me, we've got this balloon here, right? In one way, if we were filled up, we find that the air inside of us isn't going to lift us, isn't going to bring us up into heaven, isn't going to prepare us. In fact, what we see is instead is this. We, we have a tendency to just fall, right? Because we're, we're filled with the wrong air. So we fall instead of lift. In the meantime, Jesus is different. Jesus offers us an example. It says in Peter, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example. There's our word. So that you might follow his steps. He committed no sin, neither was there deceit found in his mouth. So he's a sinless person, he, and yet he was our example. He shows us how we should live. In other words, he is completely different. Jesus is the one who, who alights to heaven automatically in, from within. And that's a great example. But here's the thing. Naturally, we fail. Naturally, we fall. And so we think, oh, if I got to be like Jesus who just takes off, what I got to do is I got I to, you know, keep myself up, keep myself going. And so we try rules and laws and government and working hard. And sometimes we stay up, but inevitably we keep falling down. Inevitably, we just continue to fall. Something has to change. And what's beautiful is Christ has done a change. When you're born again, a new morality shapes inside of you. Something changes. Notice in the book of Philippians how Paul writes to this church. He says, therefore, my beloved, as you've always obeyed, so now not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Let this example of Jesus start coming out of you, but you're not alone in this. It is God who works in you. So God's the one who's working in you. In the past, it was just us with all our corruption trying to figure it out. And it's not working, right? But God is working in you both to will and to work for his own pleasure. To will and to work. See, in our natural state, we fail. And so we have to empty ourselves out. And then we come to this awesome state where Christ comes into our lives and fills us with what fills him. And so now as we're filled, as Christ fills us, so the morality doesn't come from just outside. As Jesus alights up and he goes into heaven, so now we're capable of it as well. <laughs> right? In our natural state, we fall. We sin. We, we, we're, we can have everything we can holding us up. But when Christ enters our life... Yeah, we may have some weights and things that are holding us down like my hand is, but eventually the destiny is that we're alighting to heaven. We're becoming like Christ because something's changed inside of you. The evidence I have found for that is to be quite honest in the past, I never thought of pornography as wrong. I didn't think of pride as evil. I thought it was powerful. I thought education made me bigger and better. And I was becoming a wicked person. I didn't see that my natural state was pulling all these things down. But when I came to Christ inside, he willed something new in me. And I want to be like him. I want to be free and to fly. And I see my sin as sin. And now I'm going to be transformed. And yet I get it. All of us are like, okay, if I've been born again and Christ is in me, I still sin though, Greg. We still sin, right? I mean, what's the problem here? And this is the case, how we need to get our eyes focused in the right direction. Yes, we still sin, even as Christians, even as pastors, even as uh, followers of Jesus in all of our ways. We are going to fly ultimately. 
But yes, we still have that weighted nature in us that's pulling us down here and there. It, it is that, it is that what the Bible calls our flesh. And Paul in the book of Romans clarifies this. He wants us to understand that there is a problem. We can walk either by the flesh or we can walk by the Spirit of God. We can either allow Jesus to lift us or we can go down. If we're trying to do it all by ourselves, it ain't going to work. This is where we're at now in Christ. We're ready. But our problem is that we can fixate ourselves in the wrong direction. We can get ourselves focused on the fleshly things of the world. Paul says in Christ, there's no condemnation. Our sin is gone. We are destined for heaven. That's the aim. That's the beauty. That's the goal. But then he goes on to tell us those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. There's a way that you and I can live. We can think about greedy things. We can think about lustful things. We can put our mind and focus ourselves on sinful things. And this world is filled with it, filled with things to get us focused on, on the internet, on television, in your homes, with your friends. There is plenty of greed, plenty of gluttony, plenty of wrath, plenty of lust, plenty of all the sins of this world to soak our minds in. But that's not our calling. Our calling instead is to those who live according to the Spirit. The Spirit lifts you up. That's what we have in us. Then set your mind. Give focus to the things of the Spirit. Be in the Word of God. Be in prayer. Think of the good and the honorable, the beautiful, the just. When you're in a room, pray for the people around you. When you're in a situation, ask God, what are you doing here? What can I learn from here? When you come home and you're exhausted, you ask the Spirit of God, would you give me energy? You put scriptures in spots. You keep your eyes focused on the Lord. When we do that, we begin to fly. When we focus on all the earthly things, the anxiety and all these other things, we fall into those temptations and we begin to fail because the morality must come from within, from Christ who changes us. And so we focus on the spirit. We set our mind on those things. And when that happens, that destiny begins to happen in us. I'll tell you what, in my life, it is the mornings that I have the strongest time with God. It is the times I keep myself focused and I take a, a moment where I break in the middle of the day and I keep my mind focused on Him, where I hold accountability when my flesh wants to pull me down, that that's when I'm really flying. But I'll tell you what, it's easy to get my mind fixated on the flesh bit by bit until I don't even realize I'm doing it. You know, Paul wants us to remember, keep your mind fixated on the Spirit so that you'll have life. In fact, he says, so brothers, later he says, we're not debtors to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. You don't have to do this anymore. We don't have to live in our old nature and let it pull us down. No, we get to live in that new nature that pulls us up. And so we're not in debt to it. We're in debt to Christ. In fact, it goes on in verse 14. It says, all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. There's the term. You've been changed inside. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, back into sin but you've received the spirit of adoption as sons from whom we cry, Abba, Father. When you fixate on the spirit of God and he lifts you up, your whole life is aimed like that. The spirit is saying inside of you, you're a child of God, you're a child of God. And the spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we're children of God. And if children, then heirs, and heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. And then what, we become inheritors of something amazing. We'll hit that in our last week. But right now, that new morality that we have by the Spirit of God who's within us that lifts us up is awesome. 
It is a greater morality than any government can give you, than any legalism can give you. You can work and work and work at trying to keep yourself to be good. But the bottom line is, unless you're born again and transformed, so the spirit within you actually lifts you and changes you so that you're seeing your sin and you're focused on him, you cannot be moral. You cannot ultimately become a new and improved morality. But Jesus gave us this. And as Christians, I want to call us to get our minds fixated on the Spirit of God, to live out that new morality, to walk in that new way. Guys, we have an awesome opportunity to walk in Him and know Him. And today, maybe that's what you need. You've tried your best to be a moral person. You've tried your best to be good, but you know you get drugged back down. You're pulled back in and you can make laws. You can do all this stuff. And maybe you've made excuses for the government to take care of your generosity or somebody else to take care of your morality. That doesn't count. And your own sin sits with you and your own goodness sits with you. And you need to be somebody who knows how to have that. And I want to challenge you today. If you're not born again, you will not have that. But Jesus, the new humanity, offers you a chance to be born again into a new way. And I want to encourage you to take that in. Right now, where you're at, right at home, just begin with a simple prayer. Say, God in heaven, I trust that Jesus Christ on the cross took my sin. And I want to be born again into the new humanity. I trust you're giving me that as a gift. Not so that I have to keep keeping myself up, but you would change the inside of me. I empty myself out before you. Fill me with you now, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. And I trust that if you have trusted God to make you new, to rebirth you in Jesus, he indeed has done that for you. And today, if you would like to receive that, just let us know. You can text BEGIN to the number at the bottom of the screen. That gives you this chance to say, hey, I have made this decision to follow Jesus. You can let somebody know right now online, and you can do that as well. And the reason I want to do that is because I want to give you the encouragement that you can move forward. God is faithful and God will continue to be faithful through a, new hum through a new spirituality and a new transformation. In fact, right now in, in this service, what I would encourage you to do at home is just take a minute and think through all the times in your life, all the years that he has kept you faithful and kept you as his child. And just to celebrate that today, because he's put you in that new humanity, and think of all that transformation that's been going on over those years. And just take a few minutes to be grateful and thank him for that, as he's been so faithful to all of us. So close up in this last song, just take that little time and think through that opportunity. God bless you guys, and I'm excited to see what God does in our hearts as he's completely transformed us. Go tell it on the mountain, over the hills and everywhere. Go tell it on the mountain, Jesus Christ is born. While shepherds kept watching over
with me.